from Integral Life, welcome to Everyone is Right. Lama Surya Das is one of the foremost Western Buddhist meditation teachers and scholars. He teaches and lectures around the world, conducting dozens of meditation retreats and workshops every year. In this classic conversation, Lama Surya Das recounts his own personal story on the spiritual path, from seeking to realizing, with all the trials and tribulations inherent to a journey without a goal. This was originally published in June of 2003 and is one of a series of free classic discussions we're making available on the Everyone is Right podcast every Thursday afternoon. Stay tuned next week for another integral classic. Surya Das. Megalama. Hey. How you doing, buddy? Working hard out there? Not too hard. Uh, liberating countless sentient beings. Self-liberation. <laughs> <laughs> Starts at the home. Easy man's bodhisattva way. <laughs> uh, well, one of the things I want to talk about is how you got interested in this in the first place. Just sort of kind of go over it because it's a great story. Um, and then also continue to reflect on just the state of spirituality in general. Uh, Buddhism in particular, but it really, anything that applies to Buddhism applies to virtually any authentic spiritual orientation. And so, um, so you were four years old when you started meditating. No, I was four years old when I started playing baseball. <laughs> so how did you uh, get out of that location? I never got out of that. You still play it? Uh, when I can. Not enough. So when did you actually get wind? Because people tend to forget, when you and I were going through high school, in this country, there were basically no meditation centers. There wasn't even, you know, in 1967 when I graduated, people hardly even heard a TM. I mean, the Beatles were poking their head around and heading over to India to meet the Maharishi. Um, there were no Zen centers. You know, I never saw anything like that. So when did Nothing you... going on in the synagogue or anything that was of interest in that way. When did you get wind of any of this? Um... The first time I knew about Buddhism was when I saw on TV that monk immolating himself on the corner in Saigon yep. to bring attention, the world's attention to the war in Vietnam. Right. That was a rather striking image. Of course, it made no sense to me, but it did pique my curiosity how anybody could do that and why they would do that. And You know, I started to ask a few questions or read a little, but there wasn't that much really accessible or interesting, you know, for a 16-year-old to read at that time. What year was that when you were 16? The middle to late 60s. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing about that image, of course, was that it's not that somebody just set themselves on fire. It's somebody got in a lotus position, right. set themselves on fire, and didn't move. Yeah, and meditated while doing a kind of a symbol of protest, but also of transcendence or of sacrifice or yeah. of giving yourself up for the greater good. It was pretty startling and made me think about those things for the first time. Questions that had never come up, you know, in Hebrew school or in high school and Poli Sci class. So I started to think about the East a little bit differently rather than just the pictures I had in my mind of masses bathing in the Ganges or something (laughs) like that. Between starving. Yeah. Yeah. But then I started to read more widely. And of course, you mentioned the Beatles, you know, the Beatles and folk music and Allen Ginsberg and whoever started to talk about those things. Right. Did you read Alan Watts? Yeah, Alan Watts, of course. And that's Krishnamurti. Someone. Krishnamurti, R.D. Lang, yeah. Ram Das, um, Aldous Huxley, all right. of that, right. Herman Hess, and so on, right. formative 
reading and thinking and kind of campus consciousness at that time, Fritz Perls, encounter groups. I went to Esalen and went to some encounter groups there and then at college on weekends. Where were you at college? I was at State University of New York at Buffalo. Yeah. And that's where I first really practiced Buddhism and yeah. yoga. I, and I went to a weekend with Kaplan Roshi in 68 when I was a freshman. Philip Kaplan. Philip Kaplan Roshi, the founder of the Rochester Zen Center, who's probably the first American Zen master. Well, I think what Philip Kaplow did was a monumental service to Buddhism in general, but spirituality in particular in this country, because as you know, up to that time, uh, as great as Alan Watts was in terms of interpreter and explanation and all of that, he really had a kind of talking Zen approach. Right. He was a little bit too influenced by Krishnamurti in a sense. We're already enlightened, which is in the deepest sense is certainly true, but therefore any sort of path or any sort of effort is merely taking you away from the enlightened state. That's a very, very high realization that comes frankly only after years of practice as you know even though it's essentially true now and in every moment but in order to realize that it's not something you can do just falling off a log so to speak right, well i think he a little bit had he had the disease of shunyata too much emptiness and not enough methods you know uh, kaplow was a zen master and i was very impressed by his personal presence well, the great thing that Kaplow did, the book, The Three Pillars of Zen, changed everything. He First of all, he took Alan Watts to task for just what we're talking about. And he said, look, Zen is, first and foremost, it's a practice. So the three pillars of Zen were basically that. It was, it was practice, it was realization, it was training. And that changed everything when that book came out. And certainly for me, when I read that book, I went, okay, I can't just sit around thinking this stuff anymore. Right. Well, that's what drove me to a Zen weekend. My roommate, David Schneider, and I hitchhiked from Buffalo to Rochester. We got right. arrested by the cops on the way, on the next throughway. <laughs> typical, you know, 60 stores. Getting busted on the way to meditate. Right. <laughs> you know, small vehicle, the paddy wagon. <laughs> exactly. You know, but it wasn't much of a bust after all, you know. But, so we went to this weekend, and that kind of changed my thinking about things because of the emphasis on practice, on right. silence, on the concentration and the mind, and looking into the mind with Zen meditation, and also on enlightenment. But remember, Three Pillars of Zen has a great section in there about enlightenment experience. Absolutely. That was the first time I really read, you know, like from a Zen master's point of view, not just some funny stories, but, you know, more like about the psychology and the experience right. of enlightenment, the students in modern times were having. Exactly. Thought, and there were oh, accounts... In modern times like me could have these. And there were accounts of the students themselves, right. eight or nine of them, who would have profound satories, realizations. Yeah. So I started to want that too, and not just to get high, but to be free. Yeah. And there seemed a real whiff of freedom there. And then Kaplow's personal presence was very impressive, and the Zendo and all was quite different than what I was used to. So that was different enough to really pique my interest. And after that, I started to try to meditate more and find a practice I could do, which, of course, in the dormitories of college life was hard to do. But I sort of carried that theme with me for the next few years, and then that, I think, drove me. At the end of college, rather than going to grad school, I went to India to plumb the root. Incidentally, by the way, my first sitting with a Zen teacher was with Philip Kaplow as well, and the way it happened in my case was very good friends of mine in Lincoln, Nebraska, with 
vacation once a year in a place in Mexico called Spa Rio Caliente. And it just turned out that that was for Philip Caplow vacation each year. So I went with him on vacation intentionally to meet Caplow and introduce myself to him. And he was wonderful. I was 23 at the time. I was writing Spectrum of Consciousness. And he had two or three of his students. And so he invited me to sit in with their meditations. And it had the same kind of impact on me. He's a wonderful person. But why didn't you end up just studying at Rochester with him? Well, it was totally clear that I wasn't ready. I mean, I met him when I was 17 years old. I went back to college and I was getting stoned and I never even went to Rochester to see him again. Because it just wasn't, your time wasn't right. Yeah, my time wasn't right and I was busy. You know, I went to Washington to march in demonstrations and I went to yeah. California to Esalen workshops, yeah. counter groups and went to Woodstock Festival. So you were actually... Phase, experimental time. You were at three days of peace, love and music? Mm-hmm. Did your smiling face make it into the film? No, I never saw it, but I saw a lot of other smiling faces that looked just like mine, <laughs> including the mud and the long hair and, the, you know, the running after the helicopters, dropping the sandwiches when there was no more food. And my car was mired to the hubcaps in mud. It took us till Monday night or afternoon to get it out. <laughs> and so then off to India, though, at some point. Yeah, well, then in May of 1970, my friend was shot and killed at Kent State, yeah. Austin Krauss. So yeah. that kind of turned my head around about fighting for peace and protesting and radical politics. And I started to think, you know, it was kind of a shock to me. It had felt very romantic and exciting the late 60s, almost like we were sort of narcissistic. Like, yes, we feel like we're changing the world, but also like we're in a movie. It was all very exciting and unreal. And yeah. suddenly it became a lot more real, dangerous, like life and death intruded. You mean like, oh... We might not grow up. You know, somebody could be dead. You know, an artist, not even a soldier who's gone off to fight a war. Like, you could be killed on campus. And I thought, oh, I could die, too. I started to think about things, you know, face, mentality, yeah. yeah. and impermanence, and eternity a little differently. Sure. And, and, and uh, anyway, I graduated in May of 71, and by the end of May, I was hitchhiking across Europe, in Greece, going the overland route across Turkey, Tehran, You'd have a little harder time getting across there today, wouldn't you? Yes, it's different. Yeah. It was nice then, and I yeah. climbed up inside the twin Buddhas at Bamiyan and uh, ended up in uh, India in uh, about August of 71 in my first Vipassana meditation course with Gawenka. That was the beginning of my daily meditation practice, which I don't know how, it's amazing, but I would say I've been meditating every day since then, since August of 71. Yeah. And um, I always consider Gawenka my first meditation teacher. Right. Really, got me meditating. Kapila Roshi introduced me, but I didn't keep meditating from that. Yeah. Goenka, I went to many Goenka courses. He's a wonderful teacher. He is wonderful. He's a little puritanical, but besides that, he's certainly wonderful. I understand. Well, it's a puritanical streak in Theravadan. Yeah. 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 Um, and so then you decided, though, that you wanted to deepen your understanding and realization, so you, you basically kept pursuing Buddhism in some of its other paths. Yeah, well, Buddhism, I wasn't really just fixed on Buddhism, you know, but I was looking for God or truth or peace or wisdom or something. It's just consciousness training, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah, and it was it was the early 70s, and again, I was young. I hit India. I was still 20. Yeah. And um, I went to Nukaroli Baba, and he gave me my name, and he was my first guru. Um, he died in 73, and then I went to Lama Yeshe in Zopin, Kathmandu, Nepal, and uh -huh. visited their monastery, and met the Dalai Lama in 71 and 72. And then when Maharaji died in 73, I started to stay full-time with my Tibetan teachers, Kala Rinpoche and Karmapa's monastery in Darjeeling and, yeah. and Sikkim. 
So I didn't, never really decided, but it just sort of went in that direction. And then in 74, I needed money, so I went to Japan. So I keep studying Buddhism, you know, in this case Zen, but also work and make some money. And why Japan? I went to Kyoto and studied Zen in Japan with Uchiyama Roshi. Why, did you, why was it easier to make money in Japan than in India? Well, you can't make money in India. But you don't need money in India. Right. Well, if you stay there for a few years, you might okay. <laughs> get visas or medicine or food. I see. You know, minimum money, like a thousand or two thousand a year. But I was there year after year. You know, I sold my pen, I sold my dungaree jacket, Freak Street and Kathmandu. You know, five or ten dollars worth of a jacket. Keep you going for a month or two. Months. Yeah. So you went. You ended up in Kyoto. So I went to Kyoto. Lived near a Daitokuji monastery in Kyoto and studied Zen with Uchiyama Roshi at uh, Antaiji, where quite a few Westerners studied. Yeah. And then I went back to be with Kalu Shane Darjeeling in 75. So you had a few dollars in your pocket, enough to keep you yeah, going for, right. yeah. For another few years in India. And so you were back and studying with Kalu again. Mm -hmm. And is that when you went into your first retreat? No. Um, he went to Europe to start the first three-year retreat for Westerners. Then he and Karmapa asked me and a few other people like me to help translate and bring some lamas to their centers in the West. So I went and did that and started the... KTD Monastery in Woodstock in 77, 78. Uh-huh. And then in 80, I went to France to join the next round of three-year retreat. And so that was your first yeah. extended? Yeah, 80. Yeah. And the, how did you feel your practice was going at that time? Did you feel it was adequate, that you were really understanding, it was moving forward, you were, there were still yearnings that weren't being answered? What was your sort of general state as you were Yeah, all of that, Ken. You know, yeah. I was still young and, and exploring and, you know, the language was, the languages were hard and the concepts and, you know, I studied Tibetan, but it, it was hard to, you know, understand Sanskrit or, or Hinduism, yeah. English. So, and yoga and these things were just being explained and, you know, good translators and Western teachers that could bridge the gap were just emerging. So I, I felt good. I mean, I, I was really into it, but there were definitely questions and doubts and so on. And but um, I completed my Nundro there in Woodstock in 77, uh -huh. and, you know, I was deep into Tibetan Buddhist practice, no doubt about that. I mean, yeah. you know, hundreds of thousands of practices and all. But I would say that um, I had a glimpse of what I called God in the late 60s, but I didn't really get what I'd call introduction to the nature of the mind until I was in my three-year retreat. Yeah. And, and that was in the early 80s. So in okay. the 70s, I was practicing, but it was kind of like I was practicing without clarity about the goal. Sure. But you were still, obviously, there was a very deep um, drive in the best sense and a deep doubt in the best sense. As you know, Zen uses the word yeah. doubt right. in the sense it means great doubt, means great faith, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And so you were obviously driven by that great faith. I mean, look at the trek. Look at your journey. It's well, really extraordinary. I was full-time living in the monasteries and you know if I was working it wasn't you know I wasn't really a householder but it was really only in the 80s when I was in a three-year retreat and became a monk that I really got some traction I would say on the path and realized that my guru's mind heart mind and mind were not different right and with that glimpse of the goal or of the reality underlying everything the ground the, the ground then the path was greatly enhanced all the relative practices are greatly enhanced by right. kind of view was let's say, recognition or even realization. Right. And those are big words, but it's not so far from us, so I don't hesitate to use them at this point. One of the things that's so extraordinary, as you know, is it's the utter simplicity of the ever-present that makes Satori or Kensho or a glimpse into the nature of mind seem difficult because it literally is the nature of this in every moment. 
and that realization is, in a sense, it's the goal, but it's also the ground. But it's one of the great things in, I think, the Buddhist tradition that tends to be forgotten, or at least not put front and center in some of the other spiritual traditions, and that's the very fundamental importance of an actual enlightenment or realization or awakening to this timeless, spaceless, ever-present state that is your own true condition. And that's one of the things I think that when you get that glimpse, and this was certainly a profound glimpse was happening in your uh, first retreat, that's when all the fundamental questions become resolved in a certain sense. Yeah, well, you know, many think that an enlightenment experience is the end of the path, but it's often been called the beginning of the true path. And that was certainly my case. After that, practice had a different meaning. You know, it's kind of like you're, you're playing the piano. You're not just practicing so one day you'll play it. Practice is the reality. It's not just practicing for the real thing. No, I understand. You know you are in the game. It is the game. Right. You know that there's a there there and it's here. <laughs> and so all of one's efforts are meaningful, but there's not this looking forward, you know, leaning forward always, that really changes everything. And that's why I feel that the non-dual practices like Mahamudra, Dzogchen, Vedanta, and so on, really have a lot to say to us today. I agree. So. The non-dual traditions themselves talk about two truths. And ultimately, the two truths are not two. Not but the two truths to sort of get the conversation started is the ultimate non-dual absolute radical truth, which is ever-present, timeless, isness, mm-hmm. suchness, moment to moment, fully present. 100% of it is fully present right now. And then in the relative world, there's all the things you can do in the finite realm, including working on your personality or working on your diet or lifting weights or all the things in the relative world that you can do to become a better vehicle. Mm -hmm. And the best of the traditions pay a great deal of attention to doing both of those. And so you can do all the relative practices. You can even do psychotherapy. You can do any number of things to improve that relative vehicle. But without that realization of ever-present suchness or ground, then you really are kind of just spinning your wheels and playing in shadows. Um, And so I think that's one of the great things that these paths in particular bring to this whole area. Well, as Dzogchen Master Jigme Lingpa said that until you have that glimpse of recognition, it's just like throwing rocks in the dark. You don't know where the target is or if there's a target. But if you've had a glimpse, then everything's different. You have a different orientation. It's like knowing where the pole star is even when you can't see it. Uh, Suzuki Roshi had a wonderful way of putting all that, as you know, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which is one of the wonderful statements of ever-present awareness. It's a classic. And it was that we meditate to express our Buddhahood, not to attain it. Right. And that's a classic post-enlightenment. Perspective isn't coming from Buddha nature rather than heading towards the other shore. Exactly. Now, when you were in that retreat, the kinds of practices on a typical three-year retreat include a full spectrum, leading all the way up to ultimate Mahamudra and Dzogchen Aki. Um, when did you sort of fall into the rhythm of three years? There you were day in, day out doing that kind of retreat. <laughs> well, at first... Entering it, you know, I felt like I was leaving everything behind. It was like dying. I had to go. I didn't really see that there would be an end to it. Of course, like everything else, three years passes. And then you're back, you know, pedestrian pounding the streets again. (laughs) But the first year, it seemed to take a while. The second year went fast. And the third year was like a blink. Yeah. But I do remember that when I had my breakthrough or introduction to the nature of mind, then after that, time had a different meaning. Yeah. And... It sort of turned me around, and I was more uh, attuned to the ground rather than the figures. Yeah. The, the figure ground shift uh, it changed everything, and then the relationship is much more rich. 
So, uh, in our retreat, it was more of a Dzogchen retreat anyway, so Dujim Rinpoche and Kinsu Rinpoche taught us what they call the Dzogchen view of Nindra, the Dzogchen view of deity yoga, the Dzogchen right. view of uh, tantric yoga, and right. so on. So, right. there was that influence from the beginning, not just waiting for the third year or fourth yeah. year to get to the non-dual perspective and the view and all that. That's the way Chagutoku would teach as well, and so that's the introduction I had also. Um, so you came out of the three-year retreat. Well, at least it wasn't like our mutual friend Ken McLeod. You know, he went to his first three-year retreat, came out, called Rinpoche, said, you did it wrong, do it again. <laughs> so he yeah, went back and did another three-year retreat. Well, uh, Ken has his own karma, you know. But yeah. So you came out of that. Was that when you felt that you yourself really wanted to be a lama and dedicate your, no, your life to that? No, not at all. I didn't, I didn't think like that. I, I was in retreat. I was in France. My teachers were there. It was wonderful, and I wanted more of that. I wanted to do more practice. So we built another retreat center, and 13 of us uh, did another one. So I stayed there for eight years. Yeah. I was thinking about practicing and, and loved what I was doing, and I didn't know if I'd ever come back to America. You know, it was just, it was, it was my life, that's all. So you came out of that retreat, and at some point there must have been a transition into a realization that you really needed yourself to pass on this understanding, that that's part of the bargain, basically. Well, we started a third three-year retreat, but then Dujan Rinpoche died there next door in his house, and so we got involved for one year with prayers and preserving his body, and, sure. and then we took his body to Nepal and carried it, went on the plane, you know, and interred it in a stoop in Nepal, so that was kind of the end of that third yeah. Three-year treat after one year. Yeah. Well, it's, in a certain way, though, it's a rather extraordinary way to end yeah, something was, like that, isn't it? Well, that was the transition. Then I got invited to teach the Vipassana centers in Switzerland, in England, and in America, so I started doing that. Then Kintsu Rinpoche died. Then I went with Nyoshi Kempo. We went to Bhutan together for the funeral. So I was kind of bouncing back and forth and doing a little teaching. You know, it just sort of happened organically that way. Right. And do you think the Tibetans had any idea that this wild American was going to start teaching Chen? No, no idea. <laughs> oh, man, how... I don't think the Tibetans think much about what the Westerners are doing. You know, it's a different relation. Like, the Tibetans are thinking about Tibet and what the Tibetans are going to do. Yeah. And the Westerners are there to help. I understand. To, to support and... and you know, politically or financially, or to build, or to translate, or to organize. That's what the Westerners are good for generally. It's one of the very, very great difficulties is that no matter how exalted a particular religion or spirituality might be, and this really applies to every spirituality that I'm aware of, it still generally comes out of a tradition. That tradition has its own kind of ethnocentric orientation, its own roots. It doesn't matter how transcendental you are, you can't jump out of your skin. Yep, and it, exactly, like and I was in Japan, you know, Japanese would say, you know, Americans can never really practice Zen or, or can get enlightened. That's right, and that's part of the difficulty with you know that Philip Kaplow had with his teacher, and it, and it just it goes on and on and on, and it's a very very difficult transition to make. And the only solace we can take is that the same thing happened trying to get it into Tibet, the same thing happened getting it into China, the same thing into Korea, and it's really a process of two and three generations, you yep. know. And my hat's off to all the people, certainly like yourself, and all the people, all the our friends who are teaching. It's a really heroic act, and it's very, very difficult. And, you know, my politically incorrect joke about this is one of the definitions of pioneer is the guy with all the arrows in his back. Yep. 
And I know a lot of people with arrows in their back. Yeah, well, you know, I see ourselves as part of the bridge generations, and, you know, bridges have to be walked over, and so we get a little stepped on sometimes. But that it's also an honor. We get to uphold this tradition and path as it's crossing over from east to west and, you know, just becoming more of a whole. Yeah. And so in the 90s, as people were asking me to come and teach, I started to bring those people to Nepal and to India and to France to meet my teachers. And we led some two-month retreats with a lot of Vipassana teachers and people like Ramdas and Dan Goldman attending in the early 90s. So eventually, you know, it wasn't just I started teaching Dzogchen. I brought my teachers and translated for them, and I was yeah. teaching too. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, sometimes they canceled and didn't come, and I had to teach it myself and things like that. And then, of course, those teachers started to die. So Don't you think you really yeah. stepped into this when your own teacher died? And one of the things that he left you with on his deathbed was the desire that you would produce a hundred of you? Yeah, well, he said a hundred lineage heirs like yourself. Right. Also, I was interpreting for him for countless interviews. This is one of the best teacher's trainings I've had. Yeah. So looking back, I mean, we've now had 30 years of this sort of wonderful experiment where 30 years ago there was literally none of these alternative approaches, whether it's shamanic or psychedelics or meditation or any of these sorts of spiritual realizations, um, certainly the Western tradition has a fair number of those, but they're not very common in this country and certainly not very easy to find. So we had 30 years of that, which has been exquisite in terms of both the things we learned that worked and the many things we learned that didn't work or didn't work very well. And so now it's kind of, I tend to see the next decade or so is a consolidation period where people kind of sit back, they can reflect, uh, see the way authentic spirituality is growing, whether it's happening in Judaism and Kabbalah, it's a lot of Christian, Orthodox, conventional Christian approaches are getting deeply interested in their own mystical mm-hmm. roots and their own mystical traditions, which are very rich. And all of, you know, Father Thomas Keating, for example, Rabbi Zalman and so on, these are really extraordinary men and women that are drawing on their own deep traditions to bring a more authentic living presence and ground and realization. And so I think in the one hand, the last 30 years are certainly exciting, and Lord knows we can make a movie out of your adventures. I mean, it's you know quite well, incredible. I mean, Greg already did a half-hour sitcom about my life. It was called The Return of Leonard. <laughs> it was on and Greg once. This guy at Chuck Noll came to some, one of my day-longs, and he liked me, so he wrote an installment of Dharma Greg based on my life. It's great. The Return of Leonard. Sorry, Das version. Yeah. Um, right, I'm called Leonard. <laughs> Leonard comes back from Nepal, and he's sort of celibate, but he, you know, he touches people, and they feel better, and and he also likes sports. He goes to the Laker game. I'm going to have to run down a copy of that now. <laughs> it kind of reaches all levels of our culture. That's why this is a time of consolidation and, you know, integration also. Yeah. Like what you were talking about, the Christians and Jews looking more deeply for meditation and yeah. mysticism in their own tradition. Some of this is a result of the cross-fertilization, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Interaction with the East. So just like the Eastern traditions are becoming less quietistic and a little more socially engaged or democratic. Yeah, I agree entirely. I was brought up Southern Baptist, which might be the, the least spiritual uh, <laughs> religion on the face of the planet. I didn't know that about you. Yes, yes. When I first got into college and started exploring these things, found Alan Watts and Krishnamurti and Ramana Maharshi and so on, I was just stunned. I had absolutely no idea mm-hmm. that spirituality had anything to do with that. I thought spirituality was about not drinking, not smoking, and not 
and burning in hell forever. We were introduced to it was social and it was very exoteric. Very mythic membership, blue meme, conformist, conventional, whatever term you want to use. And so when I really started exploring Eastern traditions, I then could come back and look at the Western traditions and go, well, good heavens, they're, they're just all over the place, you know, but you have to look for them. So it was a real revelation for me to be able to come back and, in a sense, befriend my own Judeo-Christian roots by understanding some of the deeper currents present in those traditions. Well, I, I found that growing up, I couldn't get much stimulation or depth in my own Hebrew school experience or from talking to my friends or their priests, you know. But when I came back from India and started to look at it through the eye of Dharma a little more, certainly could see so much of that wisdom in Jesus' Gospels or the saints and mystics, not to mention the Kabbalah and the Zohar and things I had never heard about while growing up in, in you know, suburban Judaism. Yeah. But how old were you when you first started reading those books? Then? You know, it was uh, 1967 was the summer of love, right, in San Francisco. I graduated from high school in 67, which must I think very similar to when you did, didn't you? I graduated in 68. 68. So I went to Duke University in the medical program and started reading Taoism and Watts and Krishnamurti during that year, and it blew everything open. And this, that was 68, really. And I was doing protests at Duke University. We were doing sit-ins. We were very, very, I think very sincere, but a little... Um, naive, let's say, and a little taken with ourselves, I suspect. Uh, so, but Pete Seeger came by and Bobby Kennedy and Joan Baez sang to us and the National Guard gassed the campus in 1968. It was all sort of standard yeah. boomer education in those days. And as I really, really got into the practice of it and found the three pillars of Zen and then went down and met Philip Kaplow and started a, a very intense practice, then it was a very, very quick acceleration, but it had no relation to the entire first half of my life. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely different universe, you know. And now it's it's so great because I see kids that are 17 and 18 and 19, 19-year-olds show up here to work at Integral Institute. They've read all of my stuff. They've been practicing meditation for years. They've gone to two or three retreats. And I look at them and I go, holy mackerel, come over here, let me strangle you, you little shit. <laughs> So it's really exquisite, actually. Well, you were like a tulku. You got it right away. You were very young. I'm amazed when I look at those first books of yours. You wrote them when you were like 22 or 23, right? I did. You have to sort of believe in reincarnation in a certain sense. Your example as well. Most of the people I know that really got into this, there was a recognition sometime in their teens. Something was calling them. that, That they had a very, very profound realization that this path was theirs, so to speak. And I think, you know... It makes a certain amount of sense, doesn't it? That we came a little yeah. bit primed for this thing. Right. So I think, I think there are a few things that we need to look into today that are not popular but still have to be kept in the recipe, like rigorousness and investigation and questioning and self-discipline. And I know some of these words don't have the great associations, but I think they're very appropriate. Uh, sacrifice and renunciation. Like, I really couldn't get what I was after without giving up a lot. Yeah. And just dabbling or trying to meditate while I was at college or even just traveling around in India. You know, I got a lot, but I had to focus more. So for me, that meant not, you know, besides daily practice, like long retreats, monasticism, you know, language study, like rigor, you know, devoting myself to one teacher for quite a while. Right. I mean, I'm all for doing it with everybody, and I've done it with everybody too, but I also have one or two teachers that I really devoted myself to and that knew me and, you know, got on my case when they needed to. It wasn't abstract like 
Today, somebody will say the Dalai Lama is my teacher. Or Ramana Maharshi. Right. So Everybody. We also need an Upa guru. Like exactly. Somebody to push our buttons. Or I a agree. A local mentor or spiritual benefactor. Well, that's one of the things we want to talk about next time, perhaps, is kind of the overall state of affairs, if you will, of Buddhism in particular, but spirituality in general. We want to talk about some of the missteps, which... I think in many cases can be summarized as sort of the boomeritis approach and also the positive things. And everything that you mentioned in my book is a positive, even though, as you say, they're not exactly snappy catchwords for today's uh, atmosphere. So that's one of the things we, I think, be very important to review because this is a period of consolidation. We are looking back and saying, you know, believe it or not, I've gained a certain wisdom over th- over three decades of trying to do this. And the dust has settled a little bit. We've had a chance to see what parts of us were driven by deep wisdom, what parts by neurosis, what parts by confusion, and hopefully make some sort of mid-course correction in a sense or overall review of what we've done and ways to best carry it forward for ourselves and the next generation. Yeah, it's about balance. I think it is about balance. And also, you know, I feel like, just to speak personally, that I spent 40 or 50 years looking for what I was looking for, and now, to some extent, I found it, and now it's time for me to pass that on before I die. I think that's exactly right. And we need to mentor others and not just become old fools. Somebody needs to be the elders for the next generation. Yeah. And we need a little real integrity or, or determination to do that, you know, some kind of real direction to focus to not be perfectionistic and keep perfecting ourselves in this imperfect world, yeah. but also pass it on. You're not waiting until we're all perfect before we can try to help anybody else. That would just paralyze us. Well, I frequently say a lot of people have hesitancy about becoming teachers, and I understand that. But the standard response there is, uh, second graders can teach first graders. That's right. And, uh, you know, those of us who are concerned about that may be the most likely to be good teachers rather than people who are rushing into it. Or look at the rabbis, priests, and teachers and professors we have today. Four or five years of graduate school, they're not, they may be 30, and then they're passing it on. Frightening thought. So, uh, you know, if we're concerned that we're not good enough, maybe that's partly a good qualification to be a responsible, humble elder. Yeah, I think it's a... a know-it-all expert that thinks, you know, we, we're better than everybody else. So if we know our limitations, we can really work to produce, you know, to people who outstrip, who far outstrip us. One hopes. Yeah, one, one would hope. Yeah, it's a, an old saying, too, is that if you don't have at least one student that surpasses you, you're a lousy teacher. <laughs> that, that's a great teach- slogan. Is that a spiritual slogan or is that out of teacher's college? I've just heard it for a while. I think it's yeah. a great. I think it actually was a philosopher. It might have been somebody from, you know, some German whose name began with an H. Uh-huh. <laughs> Most of their philosophers' names begin with an H. So. <laughs> I don't know what that story is. <laughs> Oh, God. Well, this is great. Um, Next time we talk, we'll do kind of a focus on the state of affairs today, you know, Boomeritis Buddhism, what we can do about that, the difference between selecting a language to skillful means address an audience versus getting caught up in the philosophy of that language. We can use an egalitarian language uh, as long as we're aware of what we're doing because it too many people with sort of narcissism will confuse a great perfection, everything is already self-liberated statement with the notion that their ego, just as it is, yeah, is perfect. Exactly. He's a guru. and they don't, Yeah, which is a nightmare, as you know. And so we can kind of redress, talk about that, see how we can move that forward in a way that 
unites those two paradoxical aspects that you were talking about, which is, yes, right now everything literally is the great perfection. It's self-liberating in its own condition as it arises. And you have to practice about 10 years before you can say that with any authenticity. And until we start to get both sides of those, you know, it, it can really be unfortunate. So, um, Larry, let me just talk about a few things. We have kind of talked a little bit more about some of the, you know, more serious concerns. Um, we've talked about this, you and I, before, uh, everything from Buddha, Dharma, and its reception in the West, uh, the difficulties of bringing a new tradition into a new culture, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the first-generation pioneers, such yeah. as yourself, that get transmission from We can talk about lineage. pioneers and Upaya. Pioneers in Upaya, exactly, uh, and all of the pits and perils of you know therein. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, as you know, a lot of the Tibetans, Japanese, a lot of the cultures that we're importing religions from are also deeply suspicious of the West and its sure. capacity to, to understand Dharma. You know, it's worse than that. Like Japanese Zen masters saying you can't meditate right. in pants or in a chair, or you know, but. Who really, who really cares today about that? Well, but that's, but you I mean, talk about that a bit because you had the same experience with the Tibetans. Same you know, you were I lived in Japan, Japan for a year. And... People would say white people can't be real Buddhists. They say, okay, whatever you say, you must, you must be an expert. <laughs> <laughs> You're Japanese, you must be an expert on Buddhism. <laughs> I, I wonder if anybody pointed it out to both the Tibetans and the Japanese that Buddha was neither Tibetan nor Japanese. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> How many conversations do you have with Tibetans and Japanese? I mean, mine are very rare these days. Well, I, I understood. You know what I mean? But as you well know, that's really where the transition occurred, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, right. And, I mean, you spend as much time studying with the, with the Tibetans as any lama in this country, interspersed with your time studying with Japanese Zen masters. Yeah. <laughs> well... I'm willing to speak out about those things. Some of my teachers, you know, even spoke boldly about this, like Suzuki Roshi did, you know, that the tradition was too ossified and calcified and, you know, familyified and just sort of codified and deadened in their old country. And he was looking, you know, he came, he liked staying in California for that. I think that's real interesting. So on the one hand, you have the whole problem. We're sort of jumping from, you know, one, the jumping from the one shore to the other shore. Uh, you have the whole reluctance of the traditions to let go of mm-hmm. these things. And then once you land on this shore, in this case America, you met with a whole nother slew of problems. Right. And it seems that the sort of first half of the last 30 years was making the jump from uh, the other shore towards this one and all of the problems of actually getting off the ground, getting airborne from those cultures. And that means going through the Tibetan teachers, Indian teachers, Japanese, Korean, and so on. And now it's like the last decade or so, most of the perils are now how to get any Buddha Dharma or any spiritual orientation into modern culture without modern culture wrecking it, basically. Well, that's a real challenge, and that's, I think it's an interesting living discussion, you know, about not throwing boot out with the bathwater, you know, the pitfalls and perils, the opportunities and obstacles. Yeah. So, in your own view, what are some of the main uh, difficulties in getting Dharma into a culture such as ours? Well, one is the uh, speed, fast-paced modern society. Right. So, on one hand, you know, time seems short, everybody wants it now. 
Things are moving so fast. Everybody's so, quote, free and mobile. It's hard to dig deep, grow roots, get to the nutrients, you know, keep digging until you find the water. So 10 years of practice is not something that most Americans find appealing. No, that's right. No, you know, we live in a pill culture. Yep. Microwave. Yeah, instant gratification. I call it instant coffee mind. You know, just add hot water and you have it. It might not taste good, but it's called coffee. You know, now food. Add hot water and you have food. As one comedian said, I put instant coffee in the microwave and went backwards in time. <laughs> and that's sort, of, that's sort of how we want to do our spirituality, I think, is just yeah. that fast. Uh, so do you find that you've had to compromise to some degree your teachings because of that? Or is it more just upaya fitting it to? Uh, yeah, you know, compromise is fine to talk about, but one could just as well put in a more positive spin and say, you know, it's all upaya and, you know, does it really take 30 years of monastic training or 10 years of ritual and 10 years of philosophy right. before you can meditate? Right. You know, or do you need a three-year retreat to go through those practices? Do you have to learn the foreign language? You know, how much time do you save by doing it in English? Yep. Um, when you have tape recorders, you don't have to memorize everything. You yep. can restudy it without memorization. Yep. So I wouldn't call those shortcuts or compromises. I'd call those advances. Uh, you know, so the speed also makes it more quickly accessible. But, you know, the downside of it, again, is sort of the modern phenomenon. I don't want to just call it the American phenomenon. It's kind of the modern dilemma of, you know, Everything new is good, but then what's new? Yeah. What's next? Yeah. What's new? Uh, so on the one hand, you have the fact that um, some of the difficulties are actually opportunities to adjust, adapt, and evolve spirituality to the present. Yeah, I think there are opportunities. Sure. And, you know, with the light comes the dark, and with the dark, the shadows are also nothing but light. So there's, you know, there's both like commercialism and fads and, you know, whatever you want to call it, like the hotness of Buddhism in Hollywood or in publishing. Yeah. You know, the downside is the fads pass, but the upside is that the opportunity is here. Yeah. Um, agreed. Uh, at the same time, it's not all sort of sweetness and light, is it? I no. Mean, there's all, there are various approaches to uh, Buddhism that I think both you and I would agree are a little bit problematic. Yes. And so let's just, you know, run through a few of those. What There's also the difficulties of the dilution of it, you know. Exactly. Just because you hear about it or read about it or visit the website or, you know, read a bestseller about it, you know, the kind of bookstore Buddhism yeah. doesn't mean, you know, now I understand Buddhism, what's next? Yep, exactly. You know, after, ten, you know, after some years maybe you could start to say that, but, you know, we're decades, but not after one encounter yeah. or one so-called enlightenment weekend, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So the dilution is part of the downside of the speed factor. In other words, if that's not done carefully, then you don't just sort of condense and make the teachings more appropriate. You can actually dilute them by yeah, catering both, to the demand for you right. know, quickness. Yep, there's both sides. Also the demand for, every, you know, Simplifying things could be good, but oversimplifying them, then you fall into, you know, simplistic thinking. Right. So, you know, years of, of, of learning, reflection, and meditation, as the Tibetans would say, are necessary. Those three, not just meditation and not just learning. Yeah. So I think it's important to, you know, tease all this out. There's, like, I, I think of it when I analyze my own work or when my board members and colleagues, we analyze our work. There's the broad horizontal dimension of outreach and breath. Yep. 
and you know popularity, and then there's the deep dimension of depths, which might be might narrow and might only you know include one or five or ten or twenty dharma heirs. Right. And then there are all the quadrants in between. Right. So part of the difficulty, again, is, and we've talked about this as well, it's one thing to speak in a way that you can meet people where you find them, and it's, it's to be skillful means in adapting their language, their philosophy, in order to more effectively communicate in a way that they can hear and understand. And then the downside of that, which I think both of us think some teachers have fallen into, is you so adopt... You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans, that right. you so adopt a well, Roman language that dilutes the Dharma way. right out of existence yeah. in really, really right. you know, horrifying ways, actually. Well, I would say, you know, when in samsara, if you do the samsaric way, then it's not Dharma, it just becomes something more, more <laughs> delusional. You know, it's like feeding a habit. So I think, you know, there has to be some spine or backbone or focus or essence. Like somebody like Chogun Trungpa, you know, I think that. That's an example for all of us of skillful means. Yeah. One of the um, things that I think even the traditional people have to kind of be reminded of is that spirit itself or spiritual realities or suchness or isness isn't contained in a particular school of religion or, or an approach. Those are techniques of finding right. or tools for finding spirit. Spirit is yes. the reality of this moment here and now. Right. And so teachings have to continue to adapt themselves to the reality of here and now if they're going to reveal spiritual realities here and now. Yes. And so I think that tends to get, we tend to confuse the tool with the reality. That comes back to skillful means. Right. So, you know, my own, of course, uh, some of my criticism is summarized in the phrase boomeritis Buddhism. Right. Well, that's a good, you know, that's a good way of analyzing it. Now, here's, let me, I'll take about two minutes and give uh, a brief overview of a little more theoretical approach to boomeritis Buddhism and some of the things that are going, that can go wrong. And then we can sort of talk about this for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, in the great meditative traditions, they're very, very good, and they have exquisite means of revealing several really profound aspects of mind and reality. And one of them is they have mapped out in exquisite detail states of consciousness, meditative states, higher states of awareness, states of gross, subtle, and causal uh, dimensions and qualities, and very, very profound in that way. They've also mapped out certain types of what could be called phenomenal stages. In other words, if you introspect your mind over a long period of time, you might see some things unfold in a general wave-like or stage-like fashion. The great traditions are full of those types of stages of Mahamudra. And they're not in any rigid, linear kind of way, yeah, but they're just sort of guideposts yeah. for things that tend to emerge right. if you stay at the, on the path. St. Teresa's Seven Interior Castles is a classic example of phenomenal stages of meditative unfolding. Now, what the modern West has brought to the picture is an understanding of what could be called intersubjective stages or how actual contexts, cultural backgrounds, interpersonal interactions can go through stages as well. And these don't show up in meditation. And these types of stages are well known in the work of uh, Carol Gilligan, Lawrence Kohlberg, Robert Keegan, Jane Lovinger, Claire Graves studied the developmental line of values, and the Claire Graves work has been popularized in Spiral Dynamics. And what they find, of course, is that 
value structures themselves tend to grow and develop and evolve. And in just using spiral dynamics and Claire Graves, they found about eight major waves or stages of unfolding uh, consciousness when it comes to values and worldviews. And some of the relevant ones are um, sort of in increasing order of inclusiveness, red, which is very egocentric, me only, power drives and so on, very sort of third chakra. Blue, which is traditional conformist, um, nothing but tradition, no innovation. It can be very rigid, very, very anti-progress. It's classically associated with fundamentalistic approaches to religion, um, whether in the East or in the West. And then orange, which is sort of modern, scientific, rational, associated with the Western Enlightenment. Uh, the next one is green, which is postmodern, and it tends to be pluralistic, multicultural, sensitivity, um, all of the things that we've come to associate with uh, postmodernism and the cultural creatives of our generation. Um, and then the two higher stages, and there are ones, I think, you know, beyond these, but the two that they acknowledge are called yellow and turquoise. And those are basically what are called integral or integrative or comprehensive because starting at those stages of development, individuals start to integrate, pull together, and appreciate all of the previous stages and all of the contributions that they've made. And so you develop these sort of increasing spheres of inclusiveness and greater consciousness and greater embrace in terms of the growth of consciousness, care, and compassion. Now, to sort of bring that part to an end, part of the difficulty is that when you get to Buddhism and its translation into this country, if you look at the great Buddhist texts, if you look at the Avadamsaka Sutra, if you look at most of the mm -hmm. Tantras, if you look at the Lankavadara Sutra, these are turquoise or higher productions. They are mm -hmm. exquisitely high productions. Right. And my concern is that they're getting translated downward yeah. by many teachers into right. mere green. Right. Because there's a certain superficial similarity yeah. of language with Zogchen great perfection, for example. Right. Well, a lot of talk about oneness or interconnectedness. Yes. Exactly. Totality, but they're really thinking about, it's really kind of the... Uh, Below the medium common denominator, mediocrity, rather than you know, well, in evolving, interwoven, different dimensions. Right, right. Yeah, kind of the spiral, multi-dimensional, uh -huh. you know, yeah. integration. Yeah. yeah. In a sense, it's fine if you're a turquoise teacher and you want to adapt your teaching for somebody who's red or somebody who's blue or somebody who's orange and so on. And certainly in the old countries in in Tibet, India, Japan, and so on, much of the background culture is blue. And so right. for the popular Buddhism in those in yeah. those countries right. are no more than, you know, Buddha loves me, this right. I know, for the sutra tells me so. No, to get to green would be good. Well, green is a step up in that regard. Right. But my problem but not yellow or turquoise. is that yes, is that they're both important. And my concern is not if a turquoise or higher teacher adopts green language as a skillful means with the understanding that that's a way to reach approximately 25% of the population known as cultural creatives. My concern is when those same teachers identify Buddha Dharma with that green value structure, which is a very limited structure. That's a catastrophe in a sense, because that's a direct identification of Buddha Dharma with merely a relative set of values like that. You know, the ones in this country don't quickly come to mind 
I mean, I do know somebody in Vermont who I consider the clearest American of all. Yeah. And I will mention his name, but he's unknown because he's so sure. clear he stays out of it. It's Harry Namdas. Uh-huh. He was Ram Das's teacher somewhat in India. Really? He's, he's an American. He's about 65 or 70. Cool. He's the most enlightened disciple of Nimkaroli Baba, as far as I can tell. Yep. And I go to him as a teacher, as a student. Uh-huh. That's fantastic. And he's I don't fantastic. have any trouble but, with that. Of course, the world doesn't know about him because he doesn't, he doesn't want me to tell anybody to come. And he, he has five people coming and sitting on his porch three nights a week. That's his satsang. Right. And he does inquiry or Zen or Zogchen. He doesn't know what to call it. <laughs> he says meditation is passe, you know. He's really deep and non-dual. Yeah. The popularized versions of these, which are green meme sort of dilutions down into mere postmodernist lingo, is becoming, in some cases, there are fairly well-known teachers and fairly well-respected scholars that are actually taking this seriously. And you will get you know, academic treatises on how Derrida is really doing the same thing as Nagarjuna with Shunyata and emptiness. It's yeah. just a well, mess. That's nonsense in my view. Yeah, and so that's part of what we're trying to do is is bring some clarity into that situation and allow some of the higher teachings of Buddhism to not be translated downward in that sort of reflex fashion without a yeah. little bit more care. It's a great challenge. I think I, mean, I have I have a lot of devotion and connection with my own gurus, but it doesn't mean I don't have judgments about them also. Yeah, because you know it's, it's not just one. It's not unidirectional. Like maybe. They were highly evolved on the enlightenment spectrum, but not necessarily on the uh, interrelational or, you know, social democratic or I don't know what, you know, ethical or yeah. emotional dimension. What we call levels and lines. Yeah. yeah. You know, you've talked about this a lot, how high somebody could be in some way in realization, but not emotionally or, you know, in other ways. Right. Exactly right. This is very cool. Um, but I'd like to see more integral intercourse of various kinds. This yes, is good. exactly. You know? After all that fragmented intercourse. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not to mention lonely, solitary <laughs> forms. Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, God. So I feel, by the way, what is beyond the turquoise level, do you feel, in terms of well, you know, well, yeah. higher dimensions? Our sense is that if you take people that have worked with um, developmental or evolutionary unfolding like Sri Aurobindo or you can even check in with somebody like Plotinus mm -hmm. and certainly in the higher inner tantras, Anuttara Tantra Yoga for example, there's a broad similarity of types of cognition that can occur and these stages mean permanent acquisitions so they're not merely temporary states or peak experiences and right. stuff like that so if you look yeah. at Orbindo his turquoise and turquoise is roughly what he would call higher mind and then he had about three or four levels of cognitive development beyond turquoise mm -hmm. and those included the illumined mind then the intuitive mind then the overmind and the descent of supermind. And so that's one way of looking at it. Again, those stages are only a part of what's going on. And there's, there has to be meditative states accomplished. There has to be these, some other minimum development in other lines, like moral development, which is why the traditions emphasize sila, 
jhana, prajna, mm-hmm. a moral foundation, right. and then meditation, and then awareness. And all of those are things that we can start to track, in a sense. When we put all of these different wonderful, great maps on the table of human growth and development and start to compare, contrast, see what similarities they share, see where the interesting differences are. And again, not as a way to pigeonhole people, but just as a way to get a sense about what's actually happening. And so the theory right now, the best guess right now, is that if you take stage conceptions like Jane Lovinger's stages of Mm -hmm. self-development, Carol Gilligan's stages of female moral development, Bob Keegan's stages of consciousness development, that what happens is if you take meditators, people who are meditating, and you give them the tests of stage development, what you find is that Um, Nothing can make people skip stages, but meditation dramatically accelerates their movement through the stages. And so you can take somebody, for example, the population at large, about 2% of the population at large are the equivalent of yellow and turquoise. But after four years of meditation, the percentage of of the people doing that moves from 2% to 38% at those higher levels. Mm -hmm. Now, that's astonishing because psychoanalysis can't do that. Psychotherapy can't do that. Role-playing can't do that. Meditation is the only tool that's been empirically demonstrated to move people through stages like that. Now, that's very profound. I mean, that's a very wonderful piece of information. Well, I believe that... And that's a very substantial body mm-hmm. of empirical data showing that meditation can help people move through these stages according to the tests that we've given so far. And I think probably the reason that that happens is whatever else you're doing in meditation, you are witnessing, being aware, giving attention to the contents of the mind as they arise. And because mm-hmm. you're doing that, you're tending, in a good sense, to disidentify, let go, not be attached to them. And that allows you to disidentify with whatever stage you're at and move more yeah. easily and quickly yeah. to the next higher stage as it emerges. And that's certainly consonant with the data that we see. It makes sense in terms of the data that we see. And one of the reasons that we're trying to have a little bit of an integral approach is that those stage conceptions, as I say, aren't found in the great meditative traditions. You can sit on a Zen mat for 15 years, and you'll never see anything that says, this is an orange thought, this is a green thought, this is a yellow thought, and so on. Right. The reason is that these types of stages are, you can only get at them with an approach, which is you actually take large populations of people. You don't look at an individual meditator and what Uh they're doing. You take, you know, groups of hundreds of them and you you pose certain dilemmas or certain questions. So classically, um, Kohlberg, for example, would ask people, um, a poor man is married to a woman who has a terminal illness. He can't afford a medicine that would save her life. Does he have the right to steal it? And Kohlberg found that people gave three responses. The first response was, yes, he has a right to steal it. The second response was, no, he does not have a right to steal it. And the third response was, yes, he has a right to steal it. But the reasons given were very different. The first response, which was, yes, he has a right to steal it, you ask them why, and they say, because I can do anything I want. Reality is what I say it is. Fuck you. Uh, the next the next response, which is no, then you say, well, why not? They go, well, because that's against the law. If you break the law, that's horrible. You can't break the law. Mm-hmm. That would be terrible. And then the third response is, which is, yes, he can steal it. And you ask them why. And they say, because there are universal principles, life is more valuable right. than $22 for medicine. Mm-hmm. And so, Kohlberg, then, you track these people over time. 
And what you find, you keep giving them the test, you know, months and years later, what you find is that if somebody who starts out giving response two, if they change, they always change to response three, never to response one. In other words, these are, a hierarchy of there's, exactly, these are yeah. stages, not just yeah. responses, but stages. Yeah. So that's generally the kind of research that the contemplative traditions didn't do. So as far as I can tell, and I haven't seen any, a lot, of, a lot of people have looked, and we can't find those kinds of stages in the contemplative traditions. So by combining what Western psychology can tell us with these fantastic tools, techniques, and psychologies and psycho-spiritual systems of the great contemplative traditions, then we start to get a much more interesting, I think, kind of overview of, the, of human possibilities, which can be very exciting, actually. Well, what I'd be interested in seeing is how one can, using the word meditation sort of, you know, generically right. as you did, right. how we can get, let's say, that 2% to get 38%, you know, progress or to right. go from 2% having that kind of progress to 38%, right. you know, without it just being, a, you know, something like Buddhism, for example, but more emphasizing the principle, the active ingredient of How awareness, identification, detachment, and so yeah. on. Yeah. How the active principle, you know, summed up in the generic word meditation can be applied so yep. that many of the most astute people can, you know, so 38% can get the benefit rather than just 2% yep. at this point or in the next generation. I agree. And that way, preserving the active ingredient of the tradition, you know, whether or not Buddhism goes from 2% phenomenon in this country to 38%. And that would be, in a way, isolating. You know, sort of the vitamin C from the citrus fruits. <laughs> or penicillin from the moldy bread. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I agree entirely. Um, that's, but you have an interest in seeing that happen too, don't you? Sort of a moving yeah. it, yeah? Right, that's something about the breath dimension. Yeah, indeed. Um, so are you optimistic about how Definitely. this is going? I'm optimistic. You know, well, things have been weighing on me heavily since 9-11 here in the East Coast and the war in Iraq and all the spin. And well, talk about that. Bush administration, you know, and the corporate hypocrisy and everything we face. But I think, you know, just looking at it in the longer term over the decades and the generations, that we have every reason to be optimistic. So, you know, I feel good about it. And I think we have to, you know, always keep hope alive, but also be very attentive that we're not just taking it for granted, that what, we're actually making a difference. What was the main impact of 9-11 on your orientation? Well, here on the East Coast, it was like a body blow. You know, I live near Boston, and my sister had a meeting in the World Trade Center that day, which she never, you know, got to go to. She could have been there. And my brother was in Washington and got stuck overnight in a building across the Pentagon, you know, because when the right. plane hit there and right. it was it was heavy we all know people who died or people who know people who died and it was a big wake-up call and a big shock but also you know part of the shock i'm feeling since then is how we closed down afterwards and everybody tries to go back to business as normal yeah and um how short a wake-up call can be and how strong our you know cultural and and materialist kind of business-like conditioning is to want to go back to norm, what we call normal and pretend that these things aren't happening regularly in other parts of the world. Part of the wake-up call and the shock was people couldn't believe that it could happen here, but it's been happening in other places for a long time. Right. And only a few thousand people died that day. It was terrible, but it's because it was our people that people were so upset. You know, these things have been going on in other parts of the world a lot over recent times in the Balkans and in Africa and so on. 
you know, in Ireland and terrorism and loss of civilian life and all kinds of things. So it's, it's very, uh, there's a lot, been a lot of stress. I think half the people in New York and Boston, Washington, are experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome since yeah. then. And a lot of that, of course, is not well treated or well understood yeah. by the general populace. So there's a lot of stress, and it's a cause for compassion. I've been feeling it's incumbent upon me to stay a little more informed. I'd say my most difficult practice in the last year or two has been paying a little more attention to the news and the newspapers yeah. so that I'm not an uninformed authority figure speaking from the pulpit, right. as I so often see happening. Uh, I really you know, don't want to perpetrate that kind of uh, now-mindedness by being uninformed and speaking about these things, because people inevitably ask. On the other hand, I think I'm also more called to meditate and to pray and to do things for the long term. Right. You know, not... Right. Not obsessed too much about Ralph Nader and you know the Supreme Court in the last election or things like that. That some people. I was just in Oregon. You know, people are still obsessing about that, <laughs> and that's all well and good. But I think I like to think more about the present and the future and, and do something different. Yeah. Find another way. So, what's your recommendation to those people under those circumstances? Did you say something? Well, I think we have to let go of of who we think we are and who we used to be and find out what's real and who we really can be. Yeah. And, you know, not just think about that. There was kind of like a World Series that, you know, if we're Democratic kind of thing because we lost. But there are other years. And and even now, you know, why is it that we have such limited alternatives to this Bush regime? Who Who's going to run in the next election? Is there a viable candidate? You know, why, why are the conservative Republicans and conservative right religiously carrying... Uh, sort of winning the field. Where is the, the liberal left? Where is the where is the liberal religious speakers? Uh, I feel like you know we're missing something. We need a little more analysis and reflection and and uh, conversation, perhaps, to learn a little more. A little more what I like to call higher education. Yeah. Not just college and graduate school, yeah. but you know, about the interconnectedness and causes and origins of all life and our responsibility and part in this. So there's more voter turnout, there's more social and spiritual activism, uh, and, and so forth. Jim Garrison, as you know, the founder of the State of the mm-hmm. World Forum, calls it a uh, neoconservative juggernaut. And he says he's just alarmed, it, speaking for himself, his personal opinion is that he's alarmed at just how unstoppable in this country the thing seems to be and how disturbed the rest of the world is at, in a sense, what America is doing. And whether you agree with it or not, America seems to, 9-11, one argument is that America almost kind of regressed in a certain sense. It went from a kind of a an orange to green orientation, certainly with, with people like Bill Clinton and Al Gore, right down to blue fundamentalist ethnocentric, um, you know, uh, conservative uh, represented by the present president by his own admission. And yep. around the world, that's very alarming, certainly to European countries and so on. And well, I think we squandered a lot, you know, all the goodwill that we had after 9-11. And yeah. also, we kind of recoiled sort of from, as you were saying, a, you know, a, a more green administration and outlook is kind of like under attack we recoiled into our sort of amphibian brain or reptilian brain sort of fight or flight response exactly that fits well with you know the cowboy from texas approach to <laughs> us or them and wanted dead or alive you know presumably <laughs> preferably dead <laughs> uh, so 
well. this does relate to what we were talking about before, I think, Ken, about spiral evolution yeah. and um, going wider, deeper, broader, not just higher, but right. you know, evolving, not... And it's not necessarily linear, but, you know, we regress at our own cost. Yeah. And there is a cost. And I think in terms of American civilization, we may be, you know, heading over the hill if we're not careful. It's a perilous time. So I'm pessimistic about this upcoming election, but, you know, looking forward to the next five or ten or twenty years. And I also think that uh, some of us have to think about how we can have our say or or make a difference or... uh, like Roger likes to say, Bucky used to say, you know, be trim tabs. Be trim tabs. Um, um, Mike um, Murphy calls it social acupuncture. Yeah. And we have to find those points where making a fine point makes a huge difference because yeah. it's connected to many other, you know, parts of the yeah. whole. Yeah. Um, I, and I do think that, that spirituality offers an opportunity to that. And again, I'm talking about Dharma rather than just any particular ism, Buddhism otherwise. Sure. It's, you know, it's an evergreen subject because people, I mean, some people even say America is the most religious country in the world. I find those words kind of ludicrous, but I know what they mean. Yeah. So, you know, real spirituality, whatever that means, which we have to, you know, make ring true. Yeah. Authentic spirituality, true liberating and freeing dharma, you know, noble dharma, not isms and schisms, can continue to play a role and even a, a more important role if if there's some of us who can who are up to that, I think that comes back to us. Right. We have to. Some of us have to be up to it. It doesn't matter what the names are, but there has to be, you know, a certain amount. So, should bodhisattvas be politicians? If that's their uh, kind of path, why not? <laughs> not like Dag Hammarskjöld, he certainly, and Utan, they certainly were. Yep. Or Gandhi. Yep. But it's tricky. It's tricky to play with the levers of power, or you know, get in the swamp. You get soaked with the swamp juice. <laughs> I, I don't know that I've ever said this before. I go to a lot of meetings and conferences. I never hear spiritual people talk about power. Everybody's afraid to think about it. Yeah. And maybe me too. But there it is. So, so some other people who maybe are less conscientious and not afraid to talk and think about it and, you know, sort of like business people who will do whatever needs to be done. Well, there's, there's an old it's quote from Edmund Burke that I think is really important and applies done. directly to power. And he said, in order for evil to triumph, all that's necessary is that good men and women do nothing. Yeah, right. And it's very, very similar with power. If we're yeah. afraid of it, if we don't want to talk about it, fine. We do nothing, and it will triumph. I think it would be good for us to study power and where true power comes from and you know the difference between like spiritual power and the power of purity on one hand and mere force and power over other people on the other hand, yeah. and sort of everything in between, yeah. and really see what is significant about how to be a positive influence in the world, how to right. be you know, powerful, and how to embody it, and how to be the changes we need to see, as Gandhi says, and everybody's quoting, and you know, how to have, find the power within ourselves and within each other and our connections to make that happen, not just feel like we're helpless or we, we're waiting for a leader to pull us along. We have to be those leaders. I think that's a message we have to think about today. Well said, my friend. Hey, thanks for listening. We at Integral Life have been producing cutting-edge discussions and practices for over 15 years now, and most of the conversations are even more relevant today than when they were originally published, which is why we call them evergreen conversations. They never fade, they never spoil, 
and they only become more valuable the longer we sit with them. Which is why we're making many of these classic discussions available to you. Each week, we're featuring one of these conversations here on our Everyone is Right podcast. So be sure to subscribe to this feed with your favorite podcast app. We'll also continue to post excerpts and sometimes full episodes from our ongoing conversations at IntegralLife.com. And if you like what you hear on this podcast, we invite you to become a supporting member in order to access our premium audio and video podcast, as well as to help support the emergence of integral voices in the world. You can get your first month for only $1, which will give you access to our full library of perspectives, practices, and presentations, all designed to help you thrive in today's ever-changing and quickly evolving world. 